Hello and welcome to another edition of Greening the News, the podcast of IEMA, the Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment. We are a membership organisation for anyone who has a professional interest in environment and sustainability, whether you're keeping up with the latest developments or pursuing our rigorous assessed pathway to full membership with all the benefit that that brings. This month, we'll be considering people power and the ability to change organisations from within towards a low carbon economy. But first, here's Andre Farah with his news roundup. The Green Agenda was on show at the recent G7's Cornish gathering, making this an important signpost on the road to the Climate COP26 in Glasgow and the Convention on Biodiversity, COP15 in Kunming, China. Never before heard at the G7 were phrases like nature positive and commitments to protect 30% of land and sea by the end of the decade. This was broadly welcomed by commentators. But it remains to be seen if commitments to action will match the revved up rhetoric. But undoubtedly, the pressure is piling up on the international conferences later in the year. Glasgow's COP26 will need to flesh out the pathways to delivering on net zero. While mitigating to meet net zero may be the primary focus for climate action, adaptation has been dubbed the Cinderella of the fight to tackle the climate emergency. Adapting to climate change impacts that are happening now or which are already inevitable is not an issue that could be put off until tomorrow. The Climate Change Committee's independent assessment of UK climate risk makes sobering reading and doesn't pull its punches in stating that the UK is struggling to keep pace with climate impacts. Extreme weather, climate action failure and human-led environmental damage are among the highest likelihood global risks over the next 10 years. Our own IEMA's Director of Policy and External Affairs, Martin Baxter, has said that the impacts of climate change are happening now. In that context, it is disappointing to see the Climate Change Committee's recent announcement stating that the government is currently falling short in enhancing the nation's resilience to the growing climate threat. In the midst of the climate emergency, failure to act now will leave the UK underprepared for the challenges ahead. If the response to the impact of the COVID pandemic has taught us one thing, it is that government needs to act quickly and follow the best advice. The threat the climate emergency brings to our lives and the future of our environment requires our leaders to take action today. The Climate Change Committee has provided a comprehensive analysis of the many risks and limited opportunities that lie ahead, adapting to the impact of a changing climate while taking action to deliver net zero will will require a focus on the development of skills and expertise across business, industry and civil society. This is an area that is pivotal to mobilising a timely response to the climate emergency and the reason why IEMA is calling on the government to develop a green jobs and skills strategy. The subject under discussion this month is the ability of activist investors to deliver real change on the road to a low carbon economy. Earlier last month, a small hedge fund called Engine Number 1 went up as the Financial Times recently described it, against the mightiest oil company in the US and won three seats on its board with a mandate to prepare it for a future free of fossil fuel. 
The oil company in question is Exxon, and the hedge fund's managers have been clear that they have more companies in their sights for, as they put it, structural change opportunities. Now, in the past, climate activists were more likely to be out on the street shouting their concerns through a megaphone than in the boardroom working with other asset managers to make change from within. IEMA members are used to making the change they want to see professionally, so the question we're asking today is, does this signal that mainstream finance is coming on board and in the board for change? And if so, what are the implications? Well, joining me now to discuss this are two IEMA fellows who are well-placed to bring this subject to life. Greg Chant-Hall of Square Gain, a sustainability consultancy focused on the built environment, and Hayden Morgan of Morgan Green Advisory, who are specialists in sustainable finance. So Hayden, I wonder if perhaps I could ask you first, why do you think that big asset management companies and organisations are now interested in investing in companies that have better performance on ESG? Thanks, thanks, Sarah, and thanks for the invitation to talk. Um, I think you have to you have to remember that um, organisations like Engine Number One, big hedge funds, they're actually in in investments to making money. So whilst they are sort of um, activists around uh, engagement on low low carbon transition, they see a longer, broader picture uh, and bigger picture around actually you know making a commercial return out of this. So they're they're um, uh, presentation that they made to the shareholders um, at Exxon, it included a long-term sort of existential business risk and the fact that there was some, in their view, value destruction of the company and that the board of Exxon had refused to accept that fossil fuels may demand um, in decline and affect the actual fundamental business model of Exxon uh, long-term business. Hence, they they did a roadshow for all the different um, shareholders ahead of the AGM and a lot of the big um, institutional um, investors, the big pension funds, especially, uh, sided with with engine number one, in as much that there there was a fiduciary responsibility that they have, acting for their own beneficiaries. They could see that Exxon, because they didn't have a credible transition plan in their view, uh, that, that there was a long term risk to the business. Um, so that's why the the um, proposal. Uh, by Exxon number one was successful in getting that broad consensus of uh, the shareholders, which are very much enlightened. And I think to your point uh, around, this is probably just the start of a series of engagement and models for activists to to affect that long-term change to protect and enhance the value of these companies. That's really interesting. So almost by seeing them as activist investors were looking through the wrong end of the telescope. In fact, they're making a sound business case under normal principles as to why the current model simply isn't working. Absolutely. And, and your point around mainstreaming this in finance, this is the combination between making a commercial risk adjusted return and at the same time having long term sustainable outcomes, um, both financial, financially sustainable, but sustainable from environmental um, social and governance perspective. In particular here, the focus was around the lack of transition plan um, and, and non-consideration non of climate change within their core um, products that um, Exxon were involved with. But you could replicate this. It could be used as a model for other 
engagement, shareholder activism with other large companies, uh, you know, where, where to affect that change at the board level. So, um, Greg, I wonder if perhaps I could t- turn to you now with your uh, significant experience in this area as well. I mean, one way, as, as Hayden suggested, is to use this as a model to think of how you could uh, you know, crack open other organisations. But on the other hand, you could argue that it would just be better to ignore these companies. And this is a strategy that uh, other financial uh, organisations have used of simply divesting from companies that don't share your ethical or sustainable goals. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, you you can divest, but then when you divest, you know, the whole nature of that means that someone else is investing. You know, you are selling your shares to a third party. So I think you know, I always sort of think it's better to retain the shares and have a voice. Uh, it, it, I always use the analogy of sort of watching a game of football. And if you're sort of um, if you're in the game, you can make a difference. Um, if you sell your shares, then you're just standing on the sidelines. You might still be shouting, but you're not in the game anymore. So I think that's one sort of way of looking at it. I think there's also challenges for people just to sell shares. So if you if you look at sort of um, many of the sort of secondary market pension funds and so on, um, that they are invested in tracker funds. So basically, that makes it quite difficult for them to divest specific companies. Um, and it's much better for them to engage and start to change the, the, the whole nature of those those organisations. And I think that, that there's so much going on in the sustainable finance space at the moment, you know, in the same way that uh, I hope that I'll do myself out of a job in the end and we won't have a finance, uh, we won't have a sustainability sort of industry because it's going to be in the mainstream. Hopefully sort of sustainable finance won't exist in, in 10, 15 years because it's just finance. As, as Hayden says, you know, the, these investors are about to make a return on their investment. And they look at the, the pros and the cons. They look at how risks can be mitigated and how value can be created. And when we think about ESG, environment, social and governance issues, they're, they're just any other issue. Um, and I think that historically we've seen sort of ESG managers within the, the large organisations, within the large investment houses, sitting to the side. And I think we're now seeing this mainstream shift of those sorts of roles being much more influential within the investment houses, uh, as we're also seeing other stakeholders, be they sort of, you know, customers, be they regulators, be they NGOs, be they the, the general public at large, be becoming much more literate in this sort of space and understanding that companies have an important role to play to manage their, their own impacts uh, as part of their, their normal way of working. There's a couple of points I'd really like to pick up in a minute. That one about sustainability become more central to business operations and the one about the consumers and customers leading the charge. But I wonder if I could take you back to your, your first comments around um, that idea of being you know, in the room and at least being able to make some change rather than uh, selling to somebody else who won't. I mean, for many years environmental pressure groups and activists have said, well, that's the ultimate cop-out because unless you are seen to take your money and vote with your feet, then you're just you're part of the problem rather than part of the solution. So do you think that's, that's fundamentally changed recently? I think it is starting to change. I mean, I think that, that you need to have a significant enough voice to make an influence in, in the boardroom. At those shareholder meetings, you need to gain a critical mass and support um 
And I think that's what happened with the example around Exxon that you were talking around with Engine One, gaining that support beforehand so that it's a group of shareholders, a group of, of company owners, effectively, um, that are asking for this change. I think that, um, and, and speaking from experience here, sometimes when within the investment houses, there, there's um, a disappointment when they try to engage with, with company boards in that the, there is no action. And I think that, um, you know, if you keep trying and you keep trying uh, and there is no action, then in the end, you would have no choice but to divest. But that's really a last resort. Uh, I'd much rather and sort of advocate towards positive engagement with these companies to get them to change their fundamental business models. You know, if we think about sort of um, the sorts of companies we're talking around here, like, like oil companies, Shell, BP, Exxon and so on, you know, there's a really useful product that they've got. It's just that we basically need to think about, you know, the whole life cycle impact uh, and how we use those products like oil. You know, we certainly don't want to be burning it and releasing CO2. Um, when we're making different types of plastics, how are those plastics impacting on the environment? So those kind of fundamental decisions are going to be made by those companies. And I think by having a, uh, a voice uh, and influencing seats on the board and the decisions that they that they take when running those companies is a much more positive way uh, of looking at the equation and is likely to have a much more significant beneficial impact. Hayden, I wonder if I could pick up with you this idea of, of mainstreaming. As Greg said, you know, ideally, and I think a lot of environment and sustainability professionals feel the same ideally, you know, they wouldn't have the job that they have, which is, and, and has been for many years, persuading people of the case for sustainability. But we are seeing more and more big organisations seeing sustainability as you know, part of the normal standard business operations. Um, I mean, do you think there are, um, unalloyed advantages about that or do you think there are you know potential pitfalls that if you're involved in sustainable finance you have to think about um, I guess the, the way I look at it and, and when I work with financial organizations the sort of the, the phrase I use is chief joiner up of the dots because if <laughs> all these all organizations have different sort of silos and different functions purely dedicated and their role is completely separate to to sort of other roles so you've got like your risk You've got your communications, legal, finance, and sustainability interfaces with pretty much all those key roles. So I find it real, real benefit in, in, in providing that translation of sustainability risk and impact and opportunity for each of those different functions within, within these organizations and just breaking down these silos to, to, to talk about, especially when you talk about existential risk, such a long-term sort of uh, over the horizon type Risk, you know, it is the Mark Carney tragedy of the of the horizon. These risks will impact these sort of companies, but they've got a short-term sort of quarterly earnings report view that it, it's difficult to 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 look at those sort of long-term risks when you you've got that short-term mindset. So, I, th I think there's there's a role there for sustainability professionals to actually understand how these sort of financial organisations work, what influence that they can have, and how to exert that influence in this sort of informed informed way and and then that engagement whether that's internal with companies or, or external with stakeholders is much more valuable uh, it's much you're talking around financial risks financial opportunities related to sustainability um, and you're sort of trying to con convert it into their language and their understanding um, and and I, that for, for me that is much more 
uh, you, get, you get much more positive engagement and better outcomes, um, as, as we've seen in this case. Yeah, and that uh, point you make about you know, short-term shareholder value, I mean, that, that's been kind of you know, the, the, every MBA student in the world has been told that it's all about shareholder value. Um, and are we saying, therefore, that actually it's not about uh, next year's uh, dividend? This is actually about whether you're going to be around in 5, 10, 15 years. And if that's the case, does that begin to tap into some of the other issues that other activists have been talking about in terms of equity, employee equity, you know, doing the right thing by the people who are working with you and paying them a reasonable wage and all those sort of things that actually do indirectly tap into sustainability? Um, absolutely. And I think there is even a shift, even in, in, even in the US, uh, some of the regulators, the Securities Exchange Commission, and they, they, they can now see that there is a move away from short-term shareholder value more towards corporate purpose. What is the broader corporate purpose of that organization and how can it best fulfill the, the needs of, of its shareholders and, and the wider different stakeholders uh, where that business interacts? And that could be employees, it could be uh, supply chain, it could be local communities it, it's involved with. The, the, the concept of double materiality is an interesting one. What is material to the actual organization itself in terms of risk potentially, but also of the of its activities, of the organization's um, sort of upstream um, uh, activities, but also downstream activities, looking across the entire value chain of an organization. And this works, you know, for a financial organization as well as a, an oil company in that respect. And there's, there's, there's much more of a recognition now around corporate purpose rather than short-term value. And there's regulators, so financial regulators um, or stock exchange participants can, are now um, realizing and, and, and around some of these longer-term risks and imposing um, requirements for companies around sort of disclosure. You, we talk a lot around TCFD. This, this will increasingly become much, much more relevant and, and when you start to think about implementation of TCFD, you think about scenario assessment, you think about longer term transition risk, that's when you start to see some of these risks can materially impact long term shareholder value. And that's when it becomes a board issue. Uh, Greg, the point that you made about um, clients and customers driving a lot of this, there was a recent report uh, from Deloitte talking to CFOs that very much uh, resonated with that. In fact, that they felt the CSOs that they questioned felt that um, that was the, the biggest push was coming from the people who were buying their products or buying their services. But does that mean, I mean, going back to this idea of unique climate activism, I mean, it's a bit, it becomes a bit chicken and egg, doesn't it? I mean, do you actually need the activists raising the profile, you know, the people out in the street, uh, the, the Greta Thunbergs of, of the world, raising profile with customers and clients in order to get the change you want to see in the boardroom? I think that's absolutely vital. I mean, uh, you, you're talking about the sort of school strikes for climate, uh, thinking about the the... Um, Blue Planet series, raising that awareness of the, the moral majority has seen a, a huge wave of pressure on uh, government at a central and local level and on, um, on large and, and small companies alike to do something about it. 
And I think that um, it's vital as a sort of starting point. And I think that Hayden talking about shareholder value, I think there's been a sort of an awakening, uh, COVID playing part of this, that the sort of triple led stool that we used to talk about, you know, environment, social, economic issues. I think more and more people are thinking of that Venn diagram now as not being a Venn diagram at all. Actually, it's concentric circles. You know, the, the, the economy, a successful economy, needs a successful and healthy society, including the employees that work in the economy. Uh, and then that society to be successful needs to operate in a healthy environment. And I think that, you know, the, the, the general awareness raising of the public globally on, the, on that simple issue has basically driven a hell of a lot of pressure um, down on companies to take some action. And Hayden also mentioned there around sort of transition risks. And that's a really important thing to note. Uh, and, and is highlighted within TCFD task force on climate related financial disclosures. That risk, whether it's physical now uh, for a company or whether it's a transition risk as we move towards net zero carbon, and we are moving towards net zero carbon. Um, you know, there's more than 100 countries who have committed to achieving net zero carbon by 2050. And that's countries. So the economy, the companies within those countries need to transition to net zero carbon sooner than that. And I think that, you know, those that have those transitional risks as we move towards that will, will lose shareholder value if they're not responding to this agenda. Those that seize the opportunity early uh, will, will gain competitive advantage. You know, the, the world is changing. Uh, you know, you have to look out of your window to see an impact from climate change now, whether it's flooding, overheating and so on. It's, it's not a million miles away. Um, Attenborough says, you know, the time for action is now. You know, we, we cannot delay the action. And I think that there is a, a general consensus with that. So there'll be winners and losers. But those companies that take early action uh, to, to, to take positive steps around this are going to be the ones that are successful and deliver that longer term shareholder value. And I'd like to ask both of you, maybe Greg first, what you think the implications are for the so the wider economy and the wider employment economy as well. I mean, on on one level, the the, the recent pandemic has reduced taken a lot of carbon out of the system in terms of people not commuting. Um, if you're middle class, but if you're not, if you're one of part of the delivery economy, life hasn't particularly got much better. You're still not on a massive. Um, salary, you know, maybe minimum wage. Um, it it doesn't. It's difficult to see or articulate the benefits that you might have if you're in that part of the workforce. And in fact, technology and low carbon solutions might mean that your job is less secure rather than more secure. Does that um, does that fill you with concern, Greg? Or, or do you, do you think that it'll all come kind of come out in the wash and we will have a a more fair and equitable society as a result of low carbon? I don't think it's going to happen automatically. I think you've highlighted an absolutely vital point. Square Gain's working with quite a lot of London authorities at the moment, some areas um, of deprivation uh, around the, the journey to net zero, um, one of which is actually to achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2025. So there's some serious sort of work to do there. And that the just transition is absolutely vital. You know, we're in this together. We've, we've got to make it a, a fair transition. And I always look at it as sort of three phases, really. You know, we need a green recovery that is fair. 
and just for, for everyone and those opportunities are fair and just for everyone. We then need to drive towards green economy, the whole of the economy becoming green and, in, and then the, the sort of inclusive and, and diverse part of that. And I think we're going to need all of this sort of diversity and inclusion from lots of different parts of, of, of the workforce to make sure that we have the innovation to actually get us to where we need to get to commercially and technically. So I think that, you know, we, we need to include people. We don't want it to be done to people. We want engagement. We want their involvement. We want their thoughts, their input, their valuable ideas um, so that we can we can take this. It is going to be a complicated uh, approach to, to get there. There's no silver bullet. We're going to do many, many things. And we need to make sure that, that we take everybody uh, on that journey, listen to everybody, listen to their ideas and then implement those that work best. And Hayden, your thoughts on this uh, more equitable society? I mean, I think um, IEMA members have told us very clearly, and we reflected that in the Build Back Better document, that what we were, were looking for is not just more of the same, but a way of rebuilding that supports low carbon, but also supports whoever you are, wherever you sit in, in, in the current economy. Um, and do you think that's possible? And do you think our you know, the climate finance activism we've been talking about can support that? Um, I guess it's certainly possible, it, it, but let's not underestimate, it's a huge transition with profound, you know, economic change across all different sectors of society. But, you know, we're not going to get to net zero without a healthy ecosystem, more fairer society, more equitable, uh, but we do need that economic growth as well. So um, you, you saw some of the uh, sort of issues coming out and documents from the G7 recent talks around Build Back Better for the world. So the Build Back Better sort of thing is, is now going to be scaled. Um, the detail is still yet to come out of how to do that. But a lot of it is around um, infrastructure in, in emerging markets. And I'm actually working on a, a couple of projects around green and sustainable infrastructure and helping private investors to invest in emerging markets into infrastructure which has more sustainable outcomes and there's a few there's a few um standards being developed around that another one around skills um and i know aima is very strong on uh, development of skills recently this week pwc announced that they were going to bring on board employ a hundred thousand consultants specifically focused around sustainability that's their role and then integrate sustainability throughout their entire organization so that's the scale that an organization like pwc highly profit driven um, is, is looking at this in terms of the opportunity. And I should just stress, this is an oppor financial opportunity, an opportunity to increase the health of our ecosystems and the health of our uh, people in terms of the financial returns and, and profit will drive a lot of this change. And, and that's not necessarily a bad thing if it's aligned with sustainable outcomes. Thank you both, Greg and Hayden, for a fascinating half hour. I wonder if I could perhaps finish by asking you both a question, which we, we normally ask our, our guests. Um, and bearing in mind you know, both your considerable knowledge in this space, are you optimistic for the next few years or pessimistic or somewhere in between? Greg, can I start with you? Yeah, I'm, I'm really optimistic. I think that we've seen a tipping point in terms of awareness 
And I think that that's brilliant. We've, we've got the demand to do something. We've got the commitments from many large organisations, from the government at central and regional levels to achieve net zero carbon. But as Hayden says, there's a hell of a long lot of work to do. There's a hell of a long way to go. You know, there's the investment in uh, ESG is right, rising exponentially but it's still nowhere near as much as what is not going into ESG. So we've got a really, really long way to go, but we've made a really, really positive start. I think that we have gained critical mass. There is the demand. And now it's up to the sustainability profession, you know, via IEMA and the skills map, uh, using uh, the language that we communicate to, to people that aren't sustainability professionals, but make the decisions, the CEOs, the CFOs, all of those sorts of people using the aligned taxonomy to make sure that they understand not only what the issue is, but also the practical actions that they can take uh, in terms of the organisations that they're running to, to make a positive difference. And Hayden, your thoughts, optimistic, pessimistic or somewhere in between? <laughs> I get accused of being far too optimistic, uh, but I think I think we've seen recently, in, in, in all joking aside, in the past six months um, also, that there is grounds for that optimism. It's not based on sort of complete blind faith, and you can see there is now fundamental shifts happening, um, especially in the financial markets around asset allocation, reorientation of capital flows, new asset classes that are emerging um, that will just grow and grow, as, as Greg said, sort of exponentially going forward. No, we, we, we do seem to be having that critical mass now. And so I think my optimism is grounded in some sense of um, some, some evidence base of reality. Greg Hayden, it's been an absolute delight to talk to you as always. And uh, thank you very much for some fascinating insights. And thank you for listening to another edition of Greening the News. We'll be back next month. Tune in then and look forward to seeing you and speaking to you then. Bye bye.